extraterrestrial intelligence. Chapter 12 Gennady Marachinov secured the top button of his bright red down parka. He looked toward the north and tried to make out land, but it was difficult. Through the thick fog and heavy mist, he could scarcely make out the outline of his fishing trawler and the useless nets, harpoons, and other fishing paraphernalia. The only trophies that this boat prized itself on catching was a stray U.S. military in the clear and not-so-clear message telemetry from a coast-launched test missile or radar search patterns from the dozen or so inland radar dishes scanning his home country. The only fish on board were those to be eaten by the officers and men of the Provindenia, which strangely was also the name of a nearby town on the Bering Strait. Captain Marochnov looked up. A gray blanket surrounded him. He felt small. Cold drops of drizzle on his face fell. He sipped his steaming strong tea and continued to digest his black bread and sausage breakfast. His eyes were heavy and thick from a night spent with a bottle of vodka. He shook his head and pledged once again to break the habit that made waking up in the morning so difficult. He turned away from the ocean and tried not to concentrate on the uncomfortable position of his boat, longitude 155 degrees, 49 minutes, 11 seconds, latitude 58 degrees north, 14 minutes, 19 seconds. The Providenia was south-southeast of the town of Seward, Alaska, and just beyond the territorial waters off Montague Island in the Gulf of Alaska. He knew that the Americans knew he was there. He looked up at the forest of antennas stretching from one side of his ship to the other. The array of long-wire, yagi, and satellite-dish antennas that designated his ship as a spy ship. No different, he grumbled, from the American cruisers sailing in the Barents Sea off the coast of Mother Russia. Marachinov put his tea mug on the rail and rubbed his calloused, sea-worn hands. After thirty years at sea, the wet cold still bothered him, and his arthritis problem was growing. He would ask for a transfer when he returned to port. These extended missions were getting too difficult, and he hoped for the opportunity in the not-so-secret Naval Attaché's Office of Intelligence in Havana. He looked back out at the unusually flat gray sea and smiled at the thought 
of the warm white beach on the azure Caribbean Sea. His thoughts were interrupted by the quick footsteps of Corporal Inayev, communications technician. Coatless and occasionally slipping on the wet wooden deck, Inayev trotted up to his captain, holding a half-cut sheet of yellow paper. Marachinov looked at the excited corporal walking towards him. Alexei, you're a fool. Where's your coat? Anayev suddenly realized he was wearing nothing more than his duty uniform without any coat to cut the chill. He saluted perfunctorily and handed the captain the note. Comrade Captain, this radio teletype message was too urgent for me to waste time looking for my parka. My young friend... Never neglect your health and the dangers imposed by being at sea. You don't have your health, you don't have anything. Take it from me. Marachinov took a deep breath and began to read the note. Perhaps next time Moscow will. He suddenly lowered the paper and looked out to sea. Then he looked back at the shivering corporal. Squinting at the note again through his water-spotted glasses, he said, You're in luck, Corporal. Anayev shivered. His teeth began to chatter as he asked, How so, Comrade Captain? Moscow has ordered us south. The captain looked at the corporal, then up towards the antennas. Muruchinov continued, They want us south, off San Diego, California. Corporal, have Titov lay in a course immediately at top speed, with these new coordinates. The captain handed the note to Tunayev. And tell the chief engineer I went to see him. Yeah, yes, sir, Anayev stammered, still shivering. Marachinov walked cautiously toward the front ladder leading to the bridge. Tell the engineer I won his spec books on the gimbal motors and mounting for the 12-meter dishes. Those idiots in Moscow want me to do some radio astronomy and point the damn dish straight up. This is insane. Anayev followed dutifully. Yes, comrade captain, comrade captain. Comrade captain? Marachinov stopped and turned. Yes, what is it? Your tea, Anayev pointed to the precariously situated cup. But as the two men watched, a small swell tipped the ship to port and the cup slid into the ocean. At least it will be warm near San Diego, comrade captain. Marachinov replied, Yes, it will be warm, my friend. Maybe even hot. Chapter 13 It was no accident that the atmosphere of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory was very much like that of a college campus. The facility was, after all, an operating division of the California Institute of Technology. The surrounding hills and the inner and outer green belts made the operating plant a pleasant place to work. Beyond the exhilarating work that was being carried on by the hundreds of dedicated staff members, there was a camaraderie and purpose of mission that set JPL apart. The men and women of JPL loved the work they were doing and where their data were eventually digested. 
Richard Redden's mind was not on the feeble signals being received at spacecraft mission control as he walked out of the administration building very late in the afternoon. He walked briskly down the middle of the service road, up a slight incline, then past the optical communications research laboratory toward the far north end of the property. He was making his way to a cluster of low-rise buildings. His weekly round-trip walking tour usually took him in that direction, but never to the small lab tucked away in one of those buildings. He reached the first one-story building and turned right, then quickly down a narrow sidewalk, his suit coat slung over one shoulder and a slim briefcase in his right hand. The long afternoon shadows made the area between the buildings a cool oasis. As Richard stepped through the door, he was chilled even more by the cold blast of air in audio processing. He was met by a cacophony of signals, bleeps and blips, emanating from the four-room suite of offices. Richard strode down the narrow hallway and into a laboratory, crammed with audio expanders, compressors, processors, tape, disc, and optical storage devices, computer terminals, and stacks of various sized tapes and discs all crammed together. A small, skinny young technician had his hands on two audio potentiometers and was adjusting the level of a loud series of hissing tones mixed with other garbage audio. The technician didn't see or hear Richard walk into the room. Richard set his briefcase on a chair and walked up to the involved technician. He reached into his pocket and pulled out the tape of the SETI contact Sam had recorded the previous night. The technician looked up and nodded, held up one finger, indicating that Richard should be patient. Richard wasn't. Excuse me, he shouted over the noise. The technician turned down the volume. All they heard now was a quiet hum of several nearby recorders and the whoosh of the freezing air spilling from the overhead air conditioning ducts. How are you today, Mr. Redden? The technician asked cheerfully. Richard threw the cassette on the control panel, jammed with dials, lights, switches in front of the tech. Tell me what this is, Richard said. Richard grabbed his briefcase and waited impatiently for a response. The technician picked up the tape, then looked at the stack of tapes to his right, marked Jupiter Approach. He shook his head. I'm sorry, but I'm in the middle of this project, Mr. Redden. I could get to it now. Do this now. I want you to stop what you are doing and work on this tape. It is more important. The technician was surprised by Richard's abruptness. I don't know. I was told, he began. Forget it. This is more important. Believe me. The tech turned the table over several times and scrutinized it carefully. What's so important? I mean, what's on here? Supposedly radio teletype. Maybe 9600 baud. I would guess, but I don't know. It sounds like very slow and very simple radio teletype. You tell me. Tell me what the hell is on here. 
and what it says. Richard turned and walked around a freestanding, multi-channel, one-inch recorder on his way toward the door. I'm in a hurry, he said over his shoulder as he went through the doorway. The technician called after him. How'd you get it? There was no reply. Who recorded it? The technician called after him. There was no reply. Who recorded it? The technician shouted. Over the idling noise of the technician's equipment, he heard Richard reply from the far end of the hallway. I did.